What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And returning after his appearances on our Wheel of Time episodes, most recently for The Gathering Storm, Craig Hanks from the Legendarium Podcast is in the house. Craig, welcome back, dude. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm in my house. I'm in a house. Well, (laughs) the Inking Out Loud house for today. So, and speaking of today, you know, it's a really special day for me here because we're finally diving into a book that, like I said about Eye of the like Eye of the World when we first started The Wheel of Time, like I've been waiting since our very first episodes to talk about this book. So today, for episode 77, I finally get to discuss with these fine gentlemen the third Mistborn book, The Hero of Ages. I am so stoked to discuss this one. Now, we read... For this week, everything up to the end of chapter 41, so... Well, speak for yourself. if you'd be so kind. Yeah, yeah. What (laughs) happened there, Craig? You want to share with the class? (laughs) I I read chapter 42 also, because I couldn't stop. Couldn't stop. Yep. Yeah. This is, I guess, where I also admit that uh, I started Hero of Ages earlier than I had meant to, like, while we were still actually preparing for our previous episode on Nine Princes of Amber. I've actually gone through the entire first half, couldn't wait, went through the second half, couldn't wait again, went through the first half again. So (laughs) I'm right there with you, man. So Drew, if you would be so kind, please give us a recap of everything that happened from the prologue through the end of chapter 41. All right. So we start off in the prologue in the point of view of Marsh as he has become uh, completely controlled by a new power in the world called Ruin, the force or creature or something that Vin released from the Well of Ascension at the end of the last book. Uh, This force is controlling all of the Inquisitors and is also causing large-scale destruction. The ash mounts are exploding, ashes raining down harder than ever, Uh, there are earthquakes, the mists are coming early early uh, you know earlier in the day and staying later and and he's kind of choking the life out of this world vin and elland are most of the way through a mission to discover all of these secret caverns storage caverns that the lord rulers set up around the final empire they have found all but one of them as of the first chapter in the first chapter ellen shows up to protect a town from an army of invading coloss along with a steel inquisitor he takes over the army of Kolos, and with Vin, they kill the Inquisitor, and they find a storage cavern, which leads them to the location of the final one in Fadric City, which is where Set came from, and has been, you know, uh, usurped by a uh, an obligator named Yeoman. So Set and Ham and Vin and Elend and Demu, they all head out to Fadric City to besiege it and try to find a way to either get into the storage cavern or convince Yeoman to to ally with them. Meanwhile, uh, the other city that had a storage cavern that they have found but were not able to really get access to is in Erto, the old seat of House Venture, which is in Rebellion, a ska named uh, Quelion, or the Citizen, has taken over the city and is emulating what he thinks Kelsier wanted the ska to do. So Sazed and Breeze and Spook are up in Erto trying to kind of figure out what to do with Quellian and how to, you know, make those storage caverns, um, the, the storage cavern there, accessible for the rest of the Final Empire. And during all of this, Spook 
has acquired the ability <clears throat> to burn pewter and has become known as the survivor of flames. So at the very end where we left off, Spook has saved a bunch of people from being burned alive by Quellion and uh, in the process of it revealed to Sazed and Breeze that he's got pewter and he is the survivor of flames. So we've had some, some fireworks here in the first part. Yeah, that was certainly unexpected, to quote Breeze at the very <laughs> end of our passage for this week. You know, jumping yes. right into style, as we always do, I am, unfortunately, the hero of ages. How cool is that opening epigraph? How cool are all of these epigraphs? I want to talk about the epigraphs first. Let's get it out of the way. What do you guys think? Well, so before we dive oh. into the discussion, just want to uh, kind of reiterate for our audience... Uh, the majority of our discussion will be spoiler-free. We will only be discussing yeah, okay. things that happened yep. in the first two Mistborn books and the first half of this book. We will give a warning a little later on when we move into full spoilers and Cosmere connections and things. So you can listen without fear if you haven't finished this book yet. Sweet. Boys? Uh, that that said, yeah, the epigraphs um, the epigraphs are great in this. Uh, they're, they're much more, coming from the writer's perspective, much more about world-building this time around than in the first two books. But man, do they do a lot of, a lot of heavy lifting in that world building department. <laughs> there's a lot of, yeah, uh, there's a lot of very obvious connections between the epigraphs and the following or preceding chapters. Uh, and and mm -hmm. so when something needs to be explained, he oftentimes will use the epigraph to do that. And I'm sure that is great for some people and annoying for others. I will say this, um, no, shoot. We're not getting into spoilers. Nope, I'll save that for later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. But no, you're, you're very right. I mean, I just had a conversation this morning with a, a gentleman in a Wheel of Time forum who was talking about how he didn't like Mistborn Era 1, and one of the biggest uh, reasons he cited was that he felt like Brandon Sanderson spent too much time exploring the magic system and not enough time building the world elsewhere, what? and the result of it was that he needed to do all of this world building in the epigraphs of the third book. Otherwise nothing would have made uh -huh. sense. And I was like, you know, I, I, I disagree with that take, but I understand where he's coming from and he's not completely wrong. Right. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting way to look at it. I just, if it's not something that you're particularly a fan of, I can see that bothering you. But like for, mm -hmm. for to me, it was, it was everything I wanted the epigraphs to be. Like I had been such a fan of the epigraphs by this point that they just, they just excited me all the more for the extra detail that we got. I loved it. Yeah. Okay, you know? so I figured out how to say what I want to say without without oh, yeah, go ahead. totally spoiling everything. Okay, <laughs> so I I read this book when it came out, this trilogy, you know, back when it was first released and then read it again for our podcast six years ago, whatever. So I, I've read it several times <laughs> uh, now, and I have never listened to it. You know, I, I'm a fan of audiobooks. I, I, you know, audiobooks are great, but for some reason, these ones and Stormlight Archive, I just never, never could do the audiobooks. I always wanted to read it. This time I did a mix and I, I found out what people had been talking about, which is if you listen to the audiobooks, it is painfully obvious who is writing the epigraphs. And if yes. you don't, then it's not. But I, I will say now knowing... Now that I know who wrote the epigraphs, even reading it, it's painfully obvious who wrote them. But if you don't know, yeah. then you're not 100% sure. So, Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where um, if you're just reading these books for, you know, for fun, to, to read a, a cool story and, and to have a good time, 
you're probably not going to pick up on who's writing the epigraphs. But if you're reading these books with the like close analytical eye that you know we're doing on this podcast, for instance, where we're talking about writing style, the style, the voice in those epigraphs is so clear. You know, it, it's just all the hallmarks of this one particular character are present yeah. in those. And, and I mean, there's there's even one. No, you know, I'll, I'll leave that for, for the, <laughs> it's the spoiler hard. It's hard, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, We're not is. spoiling this. I was about to spoil the crap out of it. It's a good thing you said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, but yeah, I think you're right, Drew. But, it, it, you're led to assume, you know, the that a certain character is writing the epigraphs. Uh, and once you know who it actually is, you're like, no, it never could have been that person. Yeah. 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 And, and you're talking about what's actually contained in the epigraphs themselves. I just want to say I love how... Sanderson took the time, especially in this book with the epigraphs, to not only give us another like narrative and another voice to kind of spice up the plot as we're going along, but now he's throwing off the gloves and he's revealing secret after secret after secret. Mm -hmm. He finally gets the opportunity to show us how well he's hidden everything that we want to know. And I just love his use of the epigraphs in this case so effectively to get that across like, this to me is such a classic sanderson move it's epigraphs like these ones that make me so badly want to use them in my own writing someday and i just i hope i can use them with half as much effectiveness as sanderson's putting forth here like these are incredible and for a first-time reader you're not going to put all of those cosmere connections together it's mm, there yeah. there we get our first mention of adonalsium in these epigraphs yes. i think it's around yes. chapter you know 35 38 somewhere in there and it, that would just go right over your head i'm sure it did mine when i was first reading the book and you know and that's that's okay it's set dressing or whatever um but going going back to the writing style and the point of you know it's painfully obvious who's writing these epigraphs if it's all right i want to revisit that because hmm. um i think it's it's good that Brandon has given these characters such distinct voices. Uh, but I will say I noticed on this read through of the series uh, that he has a few shortcuts. And I mm -hmm. think we That's fair. we use these shortcuts a little bit in real life. You know, we each have our little pet phrases or whatever, but I'm not sure it's to the degree that he uses them. And it's almost like he he's like wait a minute okay so i'm i'm writing as sazed so i need to put in i'm afraid during you know in yeah. every paragraph that sazed speaks he says well you know i, I i'm afraid i can't do that finn uh you know mm -hmm. I, yeah. and with breeze it's my good man or you know who yeah. oh my god he's my got, good man yes. he's got uh, these little or my dear yes, yeah yes. he has these little phrases and it it only jumped out to me on this read through that okay so if I'm putting myself in his shoes, he's probably just saying, okay, I need to, I need to get into this person's head, so I'm going to make sure I use that phrase, and then just never took him out or changed him up at all. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, is, yeah. That, is that a big deal? No, it's incredibly minor, but, uh, but I noticed it. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things. You know, I, I brought it up on our you know, first Mistborn episodes uh, when we had Daniel on you know, about how there are these tiny little things in there that are once you notice them, they kind of stick in your craw. They're, they are writing crutches. Uh, things like that where, you know, the characters have their expressions that they use all the time. And 
and in the you know the actual prose and in the narrative itself there are certain other crutches that have been constant throughout all three of these books things like the number of times people pause the number of times people say however you know the number of raised eyebrows <laughs> uh but I mean, paused is as as we've read on the howevers have not been as bad and the raised eyebrows have not been as bad. But paused is still there, and uh, and I'll be honest, you know, I'm reading fairly old versions of it, and I know that in more recent editions, I know in the leather bound version, for instance, uh, many of those pauses have been removed or or, or changed. Um, Hesitated. Really? The, yeah, there there was a, a just a little look behind the scenes. There was a, a chat among some of the beta readers about authors who who have these quirks, these words that are are just specific to that author. And I pointed out, I was like, you know, I'm reading this one right now, and the number of times people pause. And Peter <laughs> Alstrom, Brandon's editorial director, mentioned how many pauses were removed for the 10th anniversary editions. And and so if you if you have you know maybe a first edition hardcover of Mistborn, and you compare it to your leather bound version of Mistborn, you will find many fewer pauses in the leather bound. <laughs> I'd be interested in knowing just how many. I, mean, I bet you it's not as many as you would expect, but still, it's <laughs> yeah. They, it was enough that they, it really stands out to me as I'm reading through my my books and and maybe I should have once I learned that maybe I should have just taken my leather bounds down and and started reading those but I'm kind of scared to actually read I, those I, books don't be it's <laughs> don't be it is a pleasure it is uh it is a essential experience beyond compare drew all right well maybe maybe oh. the second half of hero of ages I will I will be reading off of gilded Pages, yeah, Smith's own, have a nice banner, leather. lights and candles. <laughs> Treat it right. I'll need to get like a, a lectern to hold yeah, my exactly. book. You know, <laughs> no, I did uh, when when I read, I did Elantris. Uh, I, I read the leatherbound version of Elantris, and I had a, a nice pillow that I would sit on my lap, and that was where yeah, I would nice. set the book, and so I would touch it minimally <laughs> and just turn the pages. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, wonderful, wonderful. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so uh, style things. Uh, do you have any more, Rob? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, there's one thing I wanted to bring up, and I I'm, I actually can't quite bring it up, but I'm still going to talk around it a little bit just for a later point in the next episode. I just want to say I can appreciate how, having read this as many times as I have, uh, Sanderson has this knack as well for reminding us of something right before we find out more about it. For like a great example from this part or not from this part, from the next part, what I thought was going to be this part. Turns out it happens in chapter 44, as I discovered. Oh, I'm, I'm almost there, Rob. I'm almost there. So I'm not going to say what it was, but there's a moment in there where it happened, and there are a few more times closer to the end of this book that I'll discuss in, in the next episode. But for now, I guess I'll just say to anybody, especially if anybody's a new reader listening to this and they've only read the first half, keep that in mind. Watch closely for it, because it's all the much greater for it. With the amount of mysteries and secrets that he's going to be revealing. I feel like Sanderson was very subtle, but very effective in that regard. He has this knack, I'll repeat, to remind you of a mystery right before it gets revealed. So, or right before mm -hmm. it gets solved. Rob, let me uh, let me push back just a little bit. 
Okay. okay. Not not that you're wrong. Not that he doesn't do that. Of course he does that. No, man, go for it. But I'm actually, I don't hear. for somebody who is reading this for the first time, I would argue, please don't look for those things. Don't come to the... <laughs> I'm serious. Don't come to the okay. second half... Maybe if it's a reread. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the second half of Hero of Ages, I oftentimes refer to it as the, uh, the epic 80s guitar solo of fantasy literature. It's just, you know, <laughs> that goes on for it's, eight minutes and, uh, and it just melts your face right off. It's amazing. And I think there would probably be something lost if you're a new reader and you're, and you're being overly analytical and trying to solve every single mystery or something. Just let it wash over you. You know, just... Yeah, I guess it depends what kind of reader you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Go, go put on Orion by Metallica <laughs> and oh don't try to, you know, uh, parse out the, the time signatures the or anything like that. Just enjoy the music. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, I, I have one more uh, kind of writing point, and that is on the pacing of this book, and I want to compare it to mm. Well of Ascension, okay. where in the first half, I was hypercritical of the pacing in the first half of Well of Ascension. And I brought up how, yes, there are some action scenes and, you know, there's some some cool set pieces, you know, Vin sparring with Zane or the, the assassins attacking, you know, things like that. But in terms of the overall plot, there wasn't much movement. And in terms of character arcs, there was very little movement. In this book, he's confronted with a a kind of unique problem on the character development side because the biggest issues the main characters, Ellen and Vin, faced uh, internally in terms of like what they needed to discover about themselves and what they needed to do, they have figured out by the end of Well of Ascension. And so there's not much character development left for them to do. And so what he does instead is, yes, we still get the Vin and Ellen points of view, but he brings in Spook. And Sazed gets a, a more central role where they have lots of growing to do. And we get to see, uh, you know, inside their heads as they are stumbling through life, learning, making mistakes, gaining strides... It's much more, in this portion of the book, it's much more about Spook. But Seized, we, we have his, his new problem, his, his lethargy, his lack of faith. And, and we see him trying to address that. We see him going through his sheets one by one, checking off religions, saying, you know, this is not, uh, this, this can't be true. This contradicts itself. You know, this one doesn't work. And, and him treating that as both... Um, a self-fulfilling prophecy that is spiraling himself downward at the same time as it remaining a lifeline for him. And it, it and it's that, that he thinks he can't fully give himself over until he's checked off the last page. And so we have this character development to help the pacing to help fill out all of the action scenes and the battles and, and things like that in the first half that we didn't have in Well of Ascension. And that's why I think this book is a much, much stronger off, you know, off uh, the starting line than Well of Ascension was. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great point as well to, to jump off of into our character discussions as well. If we have nothing else about the style, 
to discuss. Craig, do you want to respond to Drew or should we just... Yeah, look, I, I think, like you said, that's a great transition point. But yeah, let's start by talking about that a little bit. It reminds me a lot, I'm going to bring it up again, of Elantris. Okay, so one of the okay. major complaints about Elantris is the lack of character arcs for Raoden and Serene. Okay, now, okay. I, I'm not really? saying that's correct <laughs> and true. I'm saying that is a common complaint, right? Oh, man, I can yeah. yes. Raithen is the yeah. only one who gets a character arc, and the I other two... I just heard Drew's teeth clench from 2,000 miles away. Right. Yeah. So anyway... That was 75 episodes ago, and Rob still remembers <laughs> how much I glowed about the character development so, of Elantris. <laughs> so one of the things that I love about Elantris is that... Um, you, Drew, you've got me saying Elantris now. Now, Elantris is that... Uh, <laughs> the, the whole idea that uh, of of Raiden's arc and Serene's arc is that yeah they are well developed and fully formed people with worldviews and all this stuff and it's uh, it's as much about the stuff that gets thrown at them and how they respond to that and can they maintain their character in the face of unimaginable odds or you know whatever um, and that's what I'm reminded of here with Vin and Elland, where, yeah, okay, their character arcs may be done, but now let's throw the end of the world at them and see if they can maintain, <laughs> you know, their their characters. And so what this does is, yes. if we had three full books of just pure internal turmoil, uh, you know, like if Hero of Ages concentrated too much on Spook and Sazed, then it would be wearying to the max, right? But instead, we get a combination throughout the entire trilogy, but even now, we get a combination of that plus the uh, the kind of external stuff, the sociological stuff, the philosophical, the political, all those uh, kind of ruminations that Brandon can do because he's got characters that he doesn't have to sit there and develop constantly. Right, yes. You know, yes. I, I would say, I would, I would piggyback on that, though. I'd say, Craig, you mentioned just, you're talking just now about how Brandon manages to keep these characters in their in their roles, and he keeps them uh, developed. But I, w I would say when you throw the end of the world at them, I would say it's even more interesting, on the other hand, to see just how these well-established characters break down in the individual ways in which they express that as the end of the world is thrown at them. Seeing breeze try maybe a little bit too hard to perk up says it and it's oh god everything that's happening to says it there too but also with spook and how he's finding more about himself and about coming more into himself as an adult as a man um it's very very interesting to see how these individual characters deal with that whether it be positive or negative it's yeah sorry go ahead drew uh, like that that ties back to what I was kind of starting off with where I was saying that like Vin and Ellen and and by extension you know the characters we've known since the beginning you know the ham hams and breezes and and says it's you know they're they're not totally done with their character development because they do still have to engage with this apocalyptic situation with the literal end of the world at hand and so while especially Vin and Ellen, that may have found um, roles for themselves at the end of the last book, they need to learn how to adapt those roles to the changing times. And, and then in those changing roles, as they adapt them, maintain their equilibrium with their friends and, and, and the crew and, and make things continue to work despite extreme circumstances. Heck yeah. Um, should we start talking about individuals, starting with Vin? 
Starting with Vin. Oh, okay. The least yeah, interesting. Yeah. Who else right. do we start with? Yeah, of course. Our main character. <laughs> no, our it, supposed hero of ages. Sorry, go ahead. I should be clear. I love Vin as a character. I love Vin. <laughs> I just don't I don't know that she has the most to talk about in this uh, in this half of this book, right? That's yeah. that's a good starting point. That that's actually a really, really good good starting so, point there. Because you know go ahead. No, I I, I love the first two books because of her so much and if there's as i look back over the years you know this is probably the fifth time i've read the book and on all my previous reads i can remember being least satisfied with the first half of this book uh but i you know if you'd asked me a month ago why that is i i wouldn't have been able to say for sure and now i can say oh you know it's probably because uh, we had so little vin um, and I, I do miss just spending time with her, even if she's not getting a huge character uh, arc. I miss spending time with Vin. So that's all. She's a badass. Yeah, she's just a straight badass, and she's a lot of fun to read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the first chapter of the book when Ellen is talking with, uh, what was his name, Fatrin? Yeah, yeah Fatrin. Fats. Yeah, and, and, and he's like, uh, I'm bringing two armies. And then, you know, Finn shows up and he's like, who's that? And he's like, that's the first of those Arby's, I promised you. Like, just that right there is everything you need to know about Vin in this book. She is, she is approaching an unrivaled level of not only power, but ability in, and, in the and, world. And, where... uh, uh, oh, God. Um, damn it. What's the word I'm looking for? Reputation. That's what I'm looking for. Reputation yes. as well. That's the most interesting God, thing that I think there. she struggles with, and we don't really get to see a ton of it here. It happened a little bit more at the in the last book, and it will continue to happen later. But, but that's one of my favorite things that she struggles with is her place in the church. Yeah, and hmm. and I also so like pretty much the only things I had to talk about Vin for this part were with the ball. Oh yeah. And I liked how she had to deal with her reputation at the ball, putting herself back in that social setting that she hasn't really had to deal with for five years, you know, and and entering it not only with like the rust of five years, but in a very different social situation than she was. You know, she she talks about how it was so easy for her to hide in plain sight in in the balls uh, in Luthadel the final empire but here she can't hide anymore she's not an unimportant country noblewoman now she is the empress she is the most notorious misborn in the world she is the woman who <clears throat> killed their god you know and and so of course no matter what happens she's going to be the center of attention in one way or another and she has to learn over the course of that ball how to accept that how to accept her reputation. And and it's not and, just her reputation yeah. that she accepts. That's one of my uh, favorite bits from that chapter is that she accepts that, oh, I'm actually really good at this. I, I yes. know how to play the court game and how to manipulate these people and how to, you know, play the power struggles against each other and all that stuff. I'm, I'm actually quite good at this. I have no yeah. reason to be nervous. Uh, yeah. And that is... Um, it's an interesting lesson, I think, for all of us that her completion of her arc is acceptance of two things. First of all, she is a badass Mistborn and can do just about anything. You know, she is physically capable yeah. to the nth degree. And then number two, she is uh, she's good at the political game that she always thought was the foreign part of her. 
this this other part oh yeah i gotta put on the dress and leave behind my real self no these are two real parts of her and uh and i think there's something there for all of us when it comes to finding the thing you're good at and allowing yourself to know it we have this yeah, yeah. We, we kind of fetishize humility to a certain extent where if you say that oh i'm really good at something oh well you're such a dick why can't you be more humble uh no it's okay to be good at something and yeah. know it i mean there, there's Im imposter syndrome it's such a it's such a prevalent phenomenon where people even even if they're experts in their fields they feel like they're not as expert as the real experts and if they find themselves in the company of those perceived real experts they feel like frauds you know they feel like no i don't belong here i'm not actually that good when everybody feels like that and when you you reach a certain point you have to accept you know what i i can have this confidence I worked hard for this. I have become an expert in the field and I am treated as an expert for a reason. Yeah. You know, it, it, for somebody with sorry, nothing what? to talk about, we sure talked about Vin for quite a bit. Yeah. If I can, <laughs> I'll, I'll even do you one better. And I'll say, you know, it's a very great point that you brought up there, Craig, with, with Vin realizing that it's okay to acknowledge her competence. It's okay to acknowledge her change. <clears throat> Pardon me, her growth and her, and her ability. But for me, what really resonated is is her accepting that it's okay for her to like the person that resulted, mm -hmm. right? And that's I think that's actually how that that first scene ends is is her realizing it's okay that she likes who she's turned into, and that that really really resonated with me a lot because that's something that we didn't see a lot with Vin for the first two books, you know. And I, going going forward, I would say Vin is finally she's she's there. Like I would argue that despite the fact that she goes on to figure out sure more secrets about herself and, and the world as, as a whole. She's finally finished this journey into A, adulthood, and B, the woman who she wants to be, who she's comfortable being. Because to me, at this point, it seems like the majority of her struggles are now all external. She comes to grips with the fact that she may have, okay, she doomed the planet, apparently, and her species as a whole, but that just means she gets to focus all of her attention on the struggle with ruin. And for me, it made for a much faster-paced, more satisfying book as far as her narrative goes. I, I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, so, like, Craig, you brought up kind of two pillars of what you saw as, like, Vin's character arc. And I, I agree with both of those, but I would say there's a third one, and that is she, need, she needed to learn how to trust. Oh, boy. Oh. And, <laughs> yeah. And so, but, but what, it, what it is is that we have these three pillars, and each pillar kind of gets resolved in each book. In the first book, it's her coming to the understanding of her power, not needing to feel like she needs to hide, accepting herself as a, as a misborn and a powerful player in the final empire. In the second book, it's her, uh, struggling with issues of trust, both giving trust and receiving trust. And ultimately, you know, works those things out, can accept marriage with Ellen, can accept her role as, an assassin and a bodyguard. And then in the third book, it is that that final piece to the puzzle of Vin accepting all the different parts of her, integrating them into mm. one Vin instead of treating it as Vin the street urchin, Vin the Mistborn, Valette the, the noble woman, you know, that they are all Vin. You ready for this? Uh -oh. Book one, she learns to trust her friends. Book two, I was gonna, she I'll, learns I'll, to trust her uh, the love of her life. In book three, she learns to trust herself. 
Ah, yep. shooting star. The more you know. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I want to. I want to give that little gif the mind explosion. The... <laughs> there it is. That's a really good. We'll, way to we'll play. have Danny mock up uh, a black and white version of that for the thumbnail for She's this. She's so episode. talented. She'll get that spun out in forty-five seconds. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, do we have any more about Vin? No, no. I, I think I, I think that was a perfect wrap up. Per- personally, I, like, <laughs> I, I totally agree with what Drew just said. It, it, it was. Mm. So let's talk about Ellen. Do, yeah, do we go on to Ellen? Another kind of, you know, we don't have a ton to say about him. I, I, I have will one say point. it's very it. interesting to see. It, we we got it in the last book probably enough, but it continues to be. Um, uh, interesting to read about idealism versus uh, realism mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and pragmatism, pragmatism yeah. and the way that mm. he operates between those two. You're there with me. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I have a ton of interesting stuff to say about Ellen, but he, he continues to be fun to read and that's all. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's my only point was so to bring up, you know, seeing him in action trying to find the balance between his idealism and his pragmatism. I mean, yeah, that, that's I mean, just, that's what he's got to do. We are the, the, the fun thing about Ellen is the political stuff. And it always has been, uh, from the beginning of book two to now hey, it's been, if you like that stuff, I do. I love that stuff. I love political yeah. theory. I love political history. I love the so, socio-political stuff that we get in both cases. And if it's all right, I think it would be this would be a good time to kind of shift our focus over toward Erto, because with Ellen, we are getting in book one we had a revolution, and in book two there's a new government that's set up, and uh, you know it's got Ellen, and he has to learn to be pragmatic and balance his ideals and all of that, and then we go in book three to Erto, where there is no balance. They all. All they have is their idealism and then watch it eat itself and turn into essentially what what we have is um, if we want a real world example, we go back to the 1780s and 90s. We have the American Revolution uh, as embodied by Ellen and we have the French Revolution in Erto and as the as the idealism as the steam runs out the movement starts to eat itself and to uh, become terrible and violent and all of that stuff. So I, I can definitely see the parallels there with the French Revolution, though what I have been most struck by in this read is that um, Erto and the citizen and everything going on there is the Scadriel fantasy version of Animal Farm. Okay. It yeah, is... Yeah. It is <laughs> What? The the communist revolution. yeah I'm with you okay he okay. he espouses communist ideals but as it, it you know kind of coalesces it turns more and more into a a dictatorship and an oligarchy and and a, a just massive massive inequality at every level despite all the rhetoric being about true freedom and inequality or true freedom and equality yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> um, now, I, I should clarify. The, yeah. No, I, I think you're totally right. I need to go back and clarify that Ellen embodies the ideals of the American Revolution, but he ends up yes. he ends up abandoning that and saying, you know, uh, yeah, we can't do that. We've got to. Uh, yeah, I got to yeah, become yeah. a dictator too. Yeah. Um, which 
has other interesting things we could talk about. But anyway, go on. Back to Erto and the Citizen, who I think is an interesting character. Yeah, it was what struck me the most this time and, and what like really started reminding me of Animal Farm was the colors. Oh, the, yeah. the approved colors. And how like nobody can have anything ostentatious. And then, oh, actually, you can wear red if if you're part of the in-group. And then... If you're in the party, Where we are now, right? well... Yeah. And now, well, I can wear blue. Yeah. I was waiting and everybody blue. else in the party can wear red. And like, and, and it just, it's that creep. It's that power creep that you see developing over the course of Animal Farm. And for our listeners, if you haven't read Animal Farm by George Orwell, go do it. That's me. Uh, hey, it's very I'm short. It's, a, it's I very good. Um, you know, allegorical novel. Um, anyway, that, that was what really just... Punched me in the face this time around yeah. Uh, yeah. with with the Urto stuff. I, I can say I don't really quite have enough uh, enough background in political theory to really appre- fully appreciate uh, those points before now, and I, I'm definitely going to be ch- like looking at it differently on rereads because I'm definitely going to be rereading. I mean, I've read reread. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've reread this book twenty twenty five times. It's it's not going to stop. This is going to be another twenty twenty five times at least. The the real so you world guys are just giving me all the more to see. In it. Sorry, go ahead. No, the real world is more complicated than what we see in Urto. But that doesn't mean that it's not a good illustration of uh, a simple concept, which is that um, that idealism can only go so far and uh, and that people inevitably uh, power corrupts. And it's not just the person who holds the power. It's the person around or it's the people around the person who holds power who get corrupted. And uh, and that this is inevitably what this sort of thing devolves into if you don't have a structure, a system set up in place to contain the idealism. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think Sanderson addresses that with a character Alrian in, in, in her in her brief interaction with Breeze when she she says exactly what the reader is thinking. Why don't we just assassinate Quellian? And Breeze mm-hmm. is the one to tell her. It's like, well, it's it's not Quellian that's our enemy. It's the idea. It's what he represents. Because if you just assassinate him, his second in command is going to take charge. And for all we know, this man is just as violent but less competent at keeping order. And that just leads to more yeah. deaths. You know. Yeah. And honestly, you know, the the communist Russia parallels that I'm seeing, maybe this is exacerbated by the fact that I just watched Watch Chernobyl. Chernobyl. I knew it. I knew you were going to bring that up. Yes. Uh, but that's such a good are reference. Still, are you still sweating over that one, Drew? Was that that's pretty rough, right? That's a rough show. That was that was insane. That show Nemanja, was insane. Nemanja. That show is creepy. I I love it oh. so much. So this yeah. is yeah, creepy is definitely one word for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably a good point then to uh, going back to character work. Okay, so we've pivoted to Urtel. Let's talk about Spook, if you don't mind me uh, yes. grabbing those reins. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, anyway, Spook is um, yeah, Spook is our our. I, I want to say every man, but I mean he is a misting, right? So he did have power. He has some innate power that you know means we can't quite call him an every man. But he kind of fills that role in the story, it, the overall story of uh, you know you're watching Kelsey or this larger than life person, and you know Vin is his underling, and she has to learn to you know uh, pull herself up by your bootstraps. But then she does, and now she's essentially the high priestess, goddess, whatever ultimate figure and all that stuff yeah. so she has <laughs> left behind that uh that tier that she used to inhabit of uh of the everyman the relatable character and so now we get spook who fills that role for us and i'm curious how you guys think he does in that role that's chef's okay kiss. yes i was gonna say for those listening <laughs> at home that was a chef's kiss yeah <laughs> um spook 
carries the first part of this book well, which, for me. And he's not in part one, actually. He, well, he is. No, his, is. his perspective started well, in part two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, Yeah, I know what you meant. Part one for our <laughs> episodes versus the actual parts of the book. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's not. He's he's not in part one. Yep. And uh and yet his presence on the page is so powerful. It is so much fun, and it is so easy to relate to. Especially and, and this is where I think um some of the YA mm-hmm. uh kind of attractiveness, mm-hmm. marketability of this series. There was a lot of that in the first book, much less so in the second. The second book is a very adult book. The third book, also pretty adult book, but Spook is a quintessential young adult character in this. He's got the 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 pining after a romantic interest. He's got the the self-confidence issues. He has all of the uh the the power increasing and and competence of um, burgeoning you know, adolescence in, in the, yeah and and the way it plays out in the very traditional sense of what a mary sue or a gary stew is where it's it's like an idealized character for the reader to self-insert you know and and it feels like spook isn't really good mm-hmm. or or doesn't have the confidence and yet he's nailing it he's yeah. he's getting it done he's He's like, oh, I'm terrible. Uh, I'm I'm just a tin eye. I'm worthless. But I've been training, and I'm gonna take down two pewter arms with a you know my dueling canes, and then oh, I got pewter now, and I can take down however many guys, and and now I'm fighting with daggers and and wrecking dudes with daggers. That's a whole other skill set that he just suddenly acquired, you know. And and so I I'm not I'm not saying this as a criticism of him but just an observation of how Brandon wrote Spook, and I think he nailed it. It works. I, I think on a shallow read, you're absolutely right. And if somebody was uh, inclined to criticize the book for that, then they could find places to fault it. However, on a close read, you come to understand that character who is written as a Mary Sue, who is able to do everything and be everybody and, you know, to, to, to be the best, uh, turns out, Manipulated all along, and we do find that. Drew's so excited. I wish there. I wish spoilers. No, 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 no. spoilers. That's not a spoiler. We do have that up to now. We they're in the uh, in the epigraphs, and in other places we we read about guiding people's hands, and he is behind the scenes manipulating, and uh, and it is not. No, if you, I don't care who you are. If you haven't figured out by by chapter forty one, okay, you can bleep this whole thing. You can have forty five seconds of bleep. If you haven't figured it out by chapter forty one, then just put down the book and walk away. So, I, I think it'd be more entertaining to have two minutes of Craig talking with about eighteen bleeps in it. That would be the greatest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, yeah, well, yeah, that, I was trying to. Avoid going into that, but but since you did, yes, that that is the case with Spook, and and you know that's something that I I will talk about much more in the our second episode on the Hero of Ages, um, but that that just goes to show that as much as people like to criticize Brandon Sanderson for his characterization, say that his characters are flat, they're cardboard cutouts, they're you know whatever, that is not the truth. 
Um, he 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 has done some character work that's not as good as with others, but overall, when you do a real critical reading, the characters are round, they <clears throat> are dynamic, they are not stereotypes or tropes. There's always more to them than is immediately apparent. Yeah. If I, if I may carry on the baton from what Drew was saying earlier, when, you, when Drew, you were talking about Spook being more of a self-insert character in a YA scenario, you know. I wanted to say, before I get into my points about Spook here, let the record show again that I was eight, 18 or 19. I wrote down 180 or 19. I was one of those two ages. I was 18 or 19 when I read this for the first time. And, you know, Spook's narrative had me invested not to try and throw around any cheeky puns or anything but his transition from awkward teenager into somewhat awkward adult confronting all of his resentment at being ignored by what he felt were his friends as well as the girl that he tried to court you know who turned him down and then being able to take hold apparently apparently and this goes into what Craig was just talking about being able to apparently take hold of his own destiny and and to become respected. It was something that really resonated with the younger me when I was reading this book. And I just want to say during, especially during the first book, I felt so bad for spook in the final empire. Like I have to admit, even to this day, a small part of me, every time I reread the scene when Vin hands him back his handkerchief and she tells him, you know, I'm sorry, you just, you can't help who you love. You understand, don't you? I, I can't help but a small part of me remembering that thought as a teenager thinking, you mean he can't help that Ellen is about three or four years older and he's far more sophisticated and fabulous, almost r- unbelievably richer. And I, I hate myself for that thought. I hate myself for that little thought, that, that memory of that thought. It, it's that I don't still think it, but the echo is still there. It's imprinted from an adolescence, let me tell you, full of rejection. So I guess what I'm saying is I had a lot to cheer for with Spook in the first half of this book. He's finally getting some of the recognition he deserves. Before you and had was, that beard, Rob. The beard. That's yeah, before <laughs> I... No, believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, as a Portuguese, I didn't have this beard when I was that age but i still had one <laughs> i bought i bought beer for the first time at 15 and i didn't even get id'd it's just Jeez. it's one one benefit <laughs> granted the, the drinking age here in canada is 19 in ontario it's 19 it's not 21 so you only broke the law by four years instead of four six years. years i broke the law by but um and, and also <laughs> you heard it here first folks but it's, it's it's a benefit of being portuguese as much as i am but that said <laughs> Going on with Spook here, and I this is the last point I wrote down. I was really uh, spooked by their apparent return of Not Kelsey that you want to throw around any uh, viewpoint. ridiculous This puns, time, I will, I will totally own it. I, I, added, I, I realized that when I was writing it, and I just said, you know what? Maybe I'll be able to poker face that particular word. Okay, what were you spooked and by? Say it again. Kelsier's return. Oh, yeah, from, sure, From Spook's sure. viewpoint. Yeah. I was a little disturbed by that. I, I, It tied too closely with reported sightings of Kelsier that we've apparently been hearing about from other, uh, you know, members of the Church of the Survivor or, you know, other notable characters in this in this series. I just, I was like, I don't know. When I first read it, I was like, yes, Kelsier's back in the game. He's doing this. Now, knowing what I know. Well, okay, no, hang on. Let's talk about Kelsier's return because... Well, well no, yeah. It is, Kelsier's return throws up all sorts of red flags because of the incredibly convenient timing, uh, the gift of the uh, extra powers, and, you know, now we know where those powers come from and how they're gifted, and his 
his um, uh, his personality, his character is just subtly different enough from the Kelsier that we know that it is disturbing to watch. When yeah. when Kelsier in the Final Empire says they're just they're just noblemen, Vin. I, of course, I'm going to kill them. They're just noblemen. They're propping up this system that has oppressed us for a thousand years. Uh, they deserve to die. That is echoed in uh, in the Hero of Ages with Spook talking to Kelsier when he says, "Kill! You're going to have to kill them." This is it, yeah. it's it echoes what Quellian is saying, the citizen, and it's kind of this slight perversion of the way that Kelsier viewed. Uh, his revolution, where if you if you aren't careful or if you want to believe it, you're not going to notice it. See, that was me. I didn't notice. And, it. and and what is the most disconcerting to me is how Spook is at a very formative moment in his life. He he is gaining confidence, but he is still very impressionable. And when he has what he perceives to be, you know, the undead spirit of his freaking hero whispering in his ear constantly kill them you're gonna have to kill them boy what does that no, remind no. us of kill him you know like and it's that is hmm. on an impressionable young man that's that's real scary <laughs> see but myself at that time when i read this i was still an impressionable young man so I read that as legitimate. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not ashamed to admit it. When I read this for the first time, a part of me was sincerely worried that something had helped, had happened to Kelsier's spirit. In that well, he... thank you for not getting radicalized and killing the nobility in Canada, Rob. <laughs> it's okay. There, the, the nobility we have isn't worth my time to do so. No, 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 wait. Hold on. Maybe I should back up a little bit on that. Oh, man. Not but, to get too uh, political here. No, no, but, but really, Spook... Spook is a wonderful character in this book, yeah. and I thought it was a stroke of genius on Brandon's part to make him a key point of view character in this book. It, it brings a completely new dimension to what otherwise may have felt like a stale book, because we would have been otherwise stuck with Vin and Elland, whom we've already ventured through most of their character arcs so with, and they don't really... Yeah, and uh, oh my gosh, pun not intended. Um, <laughs> we can't stop. Uh, oh, wow, we I didn't even stop. think of that. Uh, and then Sezed, who you know, let's be quite honest here, very depressing character arc so far in this yeah. book. Yeah, um, you know, and and so Spook brings a you know that spark of adventure back that was there in the first book. He's he's bombastic and dynamic and the the story moves around him in ways that it doesn't necessarily move around the older characters because they have to be more contemplative and have to be picking apart mysteries and and really thinking through their their next steps whereas spook can just act because that's what he is he's a he's a young man full of exuberance and now power and and he feels he has the agency where Vin and Ellen don't have as much agency right now the world is set against them I mean how many times was it driven home in this part that like there's only so much we can do how do you fight against the mists how do you fight against ash falling how do you fight against earthquakes you can't 
there's only so many, you know, crops you can plant and hope that there's enough daylight to grow them. You know, our, killing Kolos and taking Kolos armies, that's not going to help stop earthquakes, you know. And so they don't have as much agency, but Spook has agency. He can act. And that's what makes this fun. And Drew shuts down conversation. Yeah, I have nothing else to say to that. That's, that's no, perfect. That, that, that makes me consider, if I may back up, you know, 20 minutes of the podcast here, maybe 15, we're talking about Vin and Alan and their dynamic there. That's something that makes me think when Vin and Alan are in the storage cache, the storage cavern in, in Vititan, this is something that Vin, that Alan has to yeah. come to grips with. When he's mm-hmm. talking to Vin, and Vin, oh, this might have actually been from Vin's point of view now that I think of No, this is definitely from Ellen's point of view. Yeah. Because she's she's shooting down all of his, uh, all, all of all of his, all, everything that he wants to, that he thinks he can accomplish. Vin is, is telling him, well, what about the mists? What about the ash? How do we fight these things? And, and Ellen end up, ends up snapping. You know, saying, what do you expect me to do about this? But there is still this moment where Ellen realizes, he comes to grips with the fact that he doesn't need, at this point, with Vin to be a good emperor. He needs to be a good husband. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm still going to trust Vin. And he asks, at this this one moment that sticks out to me, he asks her, okay, all right, what do we do? Any ideas? Like, he decides to indulge her on that and says... I'm going to trust her. She feels this is a big thing. This is a big deal. She's my wife. And honestly, this is how I'd be the best husband that I know how to be. And he legitimately decides, okay, I'm going to involve myself in this, what seems to be an impossible struggle. You mm-hmm. know, because that is the best husband he knows how to be. And I loved that 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 little point of development for his character. Um, his, him, you know, his being Ellen. So, um, but going back to Spook... I know we're still on Spook here. Uh, you know, I had a feeling. I had a feeling Spook was going to dominate the conversation. Maybe, maybe we should yes. talk about his um, his hero status and how he's affecting those around him. Uh, you know, not just his character development, but the development of those around him. We're we're going to get a lot more of that, I think, now in part three and four and five. But um, but he is now a new religious figure. Yeah. Uh, Pseudo-religious, vigilante, freedom fighter, I think is how he's put it. <laughs> does, does anybody else get super-duper um, uh, what, what, uh, Daredevil vibes from Spook? Oh, yeah. If I had oh. more context, I may have. Yeah. I, I really haven't. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, down yeah. To the, uh, right down to the double dueling canes. So. Yeah, super-enhanced senses, the glasses, yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. The glasses covering his eyes. Anyway, yeah, yeah. but, but uh, no, it kind of... Uh, I got Neo from the Matrix vibes there. Okay, good enough. It kind of goes back to the uh, the, the socio political stuff, and in this case, it's uh, almost pure sociology, where um, people need something to revere. And Sazed kind of talks about how interesting it is that because uh, Kelsier lived during all these people's lifetime, even if they didn't meet him, they knew that he was just a guy who transcended and became something else. You know. A, 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 now a religious fig- religious figure. That's a saint. Now really, you can, in, in di- by definition, I think. Right? Now you can, you can project that belief system onto others as well, who are simply humans, uh, and it's uh, extremely interesting to. I, I'm sure Brandon did a lot of reading on early religious movements and how they how they start, how they develop, and how they deify their 
their forebears and all that stuff. Um, I, I thought it was very, again, it's simple. Kind of like the politics of the situation, it's a simplified version of it that's easy for somebody to grasp, but that doesn't make it any less um, interesting or true. Yeah, if there's, if there's um, th there seems to be a very specific formula that Sanderson is exploring and Sazed very, very, Sazed, listen to me, Spook, very, very clearly fits one of those variables. You know, and I, I really liked seeing his approach to that. It was it was really really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, do we have anything more on Spook? <clears throat> Not on Spook. Not on Spook. I have two characters left. I have Sazed and Tensoon. Yes. Who shall I don't we talk have, about? I don't have much on Sazed that I haven't already said. So let's let's do him first. I have a lot. I have more on Sazed than any other character, even at this point. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, as I've said previously, Sazed is my favorite character in the entire series. He's mm -hmm. in the first half of the Hero of Ages. Obviously, he's he's a little more depressing. He's difficult to read. Uh, as a first time reader, and, and many times after that, admittedly, I wasn't fully able to get on board with his self imposed religious crisis, um, or that, at least that's that's how I felt about it. I I could understand that he was, you know, he's devastated over Tindwell's death. But there was just so much going on around Sazed that at times I felt myself a little bit impatient with his depression and his lack of faith and how it seemed to dominate his approach to every single interaction that he had. So uh, with, with Sazed's crisis of faith, there's a moment right toward the end, you know, it's in the late, mm -hmm. cha late chapter 30s, whatever. Uh, yeah. And there's a moment when Spook identifies what the real problem is okay so okay he yeah. says you know maybe maybe the problem is that this is you're, you're doing what you think Tindwell would have wanted you to do right she was the the perfect marxist who thought religion was the opiate of the masses and and so you are rejecting yeah. that and and turning your attention to the political stuff becoming the uh what is he the ambassador the prime ambassador for yeah. the final empire and all that stuff turning your attention to what you think would be important to Tindwell and says it, oh my gosh, yeah, I, I hadn't considered that. The fact that it's spooked. So Sazed's yeah. character arc comes now because he has, um, he has spent his entire life helping others, serving others, compiling information for future generations. He has never spared one thought for himself. So while he is a wise man uh, figure, he kind of fits the mold of that wise man counselor for Vin and all that stuff. He is, up to this point, incapable of self-reflection because he's never had to do that. And now suddenly yeah. he's in a situation where all he can think about is his own situation and, and what his, uh, uh, you know, his internal struggle, what he's going through and what he believes and all that stuff. And so it yeah. totally locks him up because he's never had practice with self-reflection. Very interesting yeah. starting point for him, and then it's identified halfway through the book, and now we're going to see where that where that leads. Yeah, and I appreciate it all the more because this is in the face of the end of the world. I mean, if there is a time, unfortunately, <laughs> this is the time. Some deathbed reflection. Yeah. You know, like, it, just something in general that I'd like to reflect on with inking out loud as a whole and, and our general decision to usually do two weeks, two episodes to cover books. And how, you know, what that results in is, generally speaking, we chop the books in half. It has never stood out to me so much 
how different authors approach structure in their books. This is definitely a writing style thing more than character, but it ties in. Like, sure, sure. How how we we chopped this book basically in half, and the last like three or four chapters that we read for this just major turning points in all of the character arcs and plot lines. Like, it, you know, Tensoon escapes. Seized has his revelation about, you know, what his problem is. Spook gets pewter and becomes a survivor of flames. You know, Vin and Ellen go into the ball and Vin has her kind of uh, reconciliation with her noblewoman side. Like, every Brandon Sanderson book in particular that we read, when we chop it in half... There's always, just before the halfway point, two or three major turning points for the story and for the characters. And and it's something that I, I never uh, addressed so directly until doing this podcast. And, and it's fascinating for me as a writer to look at things like that and, and then consider, you know, the stories I'm writing... Do I do that? Like, I, I so badly right now want to go back and, and like, pull up the the current draft of, of my last book and, and check, you know, about the 45% mark and, and see, do I have moments like this? Is this something I've subconsciously ingrained in myself <laughs> because I grew up reading Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson? You know, like... Uh, it's, the it's fact that you can list multiple authors there, I think, justifies it because this is a trend. This is something that authors learn from other authors, so you don't have to worry about, you know, mm -hmm. copying somebody. Or, oh or, no, or I, I don't think it's like a somebody. I think this is this is yeah, that's something not that's a worry very effective. You know, yeah, not a, not a worry at all. It's it's more of an academic thing, like. I can see it working in other books. Is it mm -hmm. something that I'm employing in my own writing, and is it working in my writing? You know. Yeah, and like, there, there are hundreds of ways to, to do into. that, but this is certainly an effective one. And like you said, Rob, there's yeah. there's examples all over the place. Troll in the dungeon, or whatever. You know, there's oh, yeah, yeah, there yeah. moments. There's always a moment. I wasn't expecting to hear Quirrell on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Still, back to characters, well, though. I realized that was kind of like a little sidetrack, but... That's all right. You know, going back to... I still have a little a little bit more about Sazed. Um, I want to say there's something that Sanderson has started doing with certain viewpoints, certain being mostly Sazed, a little bit with Elend. Um, as far back as as far back as the last book, honestly, that, I, that I'm really, really starting to appreciate, knowing where to find it. Sazed's Crisis of Faith and how it ties directly into the threat over the world as a whole, there are moments where he, or Ellen, begin to lose hope, and then we get a little bit more. One tiny detail, one more breadcrumb to keep us going. In mm -hmm. Luthadel, in the last book, at the end of The Well of Ascension, it happened as the Coloss broke into the city, and Sazed realized they had lost. And then he sees the glint of gold, and Vin lands, and she saves them. And then comes that whole scene that I was glowing about so much last episode with the Ska chanting and Sazed witnessing. Mm -hmm. But we get another moment w with Sazed in this book, when he has a discussion with Breeze in the cavern next to the underground lake about the ash that's covering the world. And I wrote down the quote here. I, he says... Um, or he being Brandon in this case, go uh, voicing through Sazed, he says... He wondered more and more whether they were simply creating an enemy in this force that Vin had felt. He didn't know anymore. He didn't believe for a moment that she would have fabricated her stories, yet if there were no truth to his religions, 
was it too much of a stretch to infer that the world was simply ending because it was time? Green, Breeze said. And that's it right there. Sazed turns around. And then Breeze goes on to ponder how odd a green-colored planet would look like. But I, I want to point out, again, right when Sazed has that fatalistic thought, boom, hope. And in this case, with one word, the impact of that moment is never lost on me. I, th I think it's just so masterfully done. And I think, in, in my case, this one, these moments are a stellar example of why I hold this book in such a high regard. So, that's everything I have to say about Sazed right there. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. Yeah. Are there any other major characters that we want to talk about? Just Tensoon is yeah, the one I have at one yeah. point. We don't, uh, we don't have enough yeoman yet to talk about, do we? Uh, Not quite yet, no. although he is fascinating. I do want to talk yeah. to yeah, we will. that character next episode. <laughs> um, okay, so Tensoon. Do we have a ton to talk about there? Either? I mean, there's a lot of world Not building much. that goes on. Uh, knowing yeah, I, like myself, I just have one thing. Like, that's it. Not much to talk about with Tensoon. What's your thing? Well, okay, so Tensoon is, from what I gather, a favorite character for whatever reason amongst a lot of Mistborn fans. Like, I find him okay. He's definitely not boring. But for me, like, at least in the first half of this book, he starts off too complacent. I definitely mm -hmm. see him starting. He's obviously starting to rebel. And I love knowing how important this whole timeline is, this, this whole narrative is, as, as a, you know, a, a narrative piece. But, you know, for everything to come together in the next part. Tensoon is a solid character. He's not in my top three or maybe my maybe even in my top five. But I have heard a lot of fans express the fact that he is, for whatever reason, their favorite. And I just wrote down, he's not the Chondra that we deserve, but the Chondra that we need. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, I was thinking of another another Batman reference with... Uh... Were you really? Oh, yeah. No, when uh, when Quellian and his whole uh, thing, he's like, he's like, I, and I, I give it to you, the people. And he's just such a, <laughs> yeah, such yeah. a terrible fake Marxist. Such a Bane way. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, Tensoon, everybody loves a rebel, right? And so right. the more the Tensoon storyline goes on, the more rebellious he becomes. And so the more attractive he is, uh, because we all like to fancy ourselves as rebels. Of course, that's mm -hmm. baloney for most of us, um, but uh, but we like to think, you know, oh, yeah, I'm totally, I'm rebellious. Yeah, sure. And so I think that's where the attraction comes from, Rob, if you're wondering why people like him so much. I, I mean, and I'm sure we could dig deeper into why people like a rebel, but I think on the surface, at least that's it. Yeah, and, sure, sure. and it goes, you know, goes into what made Spook such a, a driving force character for this is that Tensoon has agency in this. He's, he's planning and plotting and being active and, you know, to where we, we leave off with him where he has just full-on manipulated the second generation into giving him the dog bones and then outsmarting them and overpowering them and escaping. Like, he's he's got... Um, a, among the characters in the book, because he's not dealing directly with these, like, high-level um, issues he has the ability to take matters into his own hands through the first half of this book where he can do things that we are rooting for. <laughs> so it's similar to your point about spook, right? Like, yeah, letting yeah. the story yeah. move along. It's also another moment of acceptance, like what we had with Vin where he, when he gets the dog's bones back, 
and realizes now this is this is awesome this is the body that yeah. uh, not just the body that i need but this is a body that i like and that i enjoy and coming to accept uh, that he doesn't have to play exactly by everybody else's rules so mm-hmm. or by his own self-imposed rules right and his prejudices against humankind yeah definitely yeah, and I, I only had one note uh, more on Tensoon, and that was kind of even tangential to Tensoon. That's just hi Milan. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, right. <laughs> I, I, this is something I, I, I picked had, up on right away. So it, it oh, had been who's so spoiling long. things now, Drew. Who's spoiling things now? No, I, oh yeah, wait I'm a second. Well, he's anything. got a point there. <laughs> I'm not spoiling anything. <laughs> I I couldn't remember um, if mm. Milan were in this book or not. I feel you, Craig. I feel you. I and feel you. and so I was like, because it, it had been so long since I read Mistborn Era 1, you know, it was like, I mean, since I've read Cosmere in general, I mean, all, the only Cosmere <laughs> reading I've done in the past, man, when did Oathbringer come out? 2017? Yeah, the uh, only Cosmere yeah. reading I've done since then was like the Rhythm of War beta read. And, and, and so getting my my feet wet in in Scadriel again I was like oh yeah like there's this character I forgot like and and I wasn't sure if I was remembering right and and I was so I'm I'm happy about that <laughs> sweet yeah that's everything I have about all of my characters are there any other character points that we have to discuss before we take off our spoiler gloves and go into the miscellaneous viewpoints not all of which are going to contain spoilers but uh I I do have one more point and that sweet. is on Marsh Ah, yeah, see, my first point in my miscellaneous is about Marsh. Okay, yeah, the the points of view, I'm glad the points of view from him are short. Because being in his head for longer than a couple of pages at a time would be so rough in this book. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, <laughs> his chapters bring us a lot of world-building stuff, learning how mm-hmm. how the magic works and all that stuff. But it's just... It's well, we get this a little bit with other characters as well, like Vin's and Ellen's struggles and all that, where it's so repetitive. It's so repetitive. There, there's a single issue, and every time we get a Marsh chapter, it's, oh, I wish I could control myself. Nope, I'm just gonna not fight for a while. And it's that he has that conversation with him twice every time he has a point of view chapter, and so I. Find him interesting from a world-building perspective, but yeah, thank goodness I don't have to read him any more than that. <laughs> so would you say it feels like a little bit formulaic? Well, yeah. I mean, but that's... Yeah. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, I, I don't think... I think formulaic is an unfortunate slur. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Uh, like, I, I would compare the Marsh chapters in this book to, uh, without spoiling anything, the Forsaken points of view in The Wheel of Time. How it gives yes. you a look onto the other side of the equation. Yes. And in in so doing, doesn't really provide answers, but heightens the mystery. Mm. You know, you, yeah. you, you get these tidbits dropped in Marsha's point of view, and you're like, oh, this is new. And then once you get over the ooh, shiny aspect of it, you realize, wait a second, that new thing that just got dropped, showing us the other side opens up a dozen new questions yeah you know i it's 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 really i think it's really really appropriate especially to note that our first viewpoint from marsh first of all how depressing it 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 was and how it spelled the future of his narrative at least you know the first words of this book marsh struggled to kill himself 
five words. It's like, oh, damn. Okay. Yeah, talk about opening a book with a bang. Wow. <laughs> okay. Dropping the bomb on us there. But at the same time, I do think it was really appropriate to see Hemallergy for the first time with our prologue, our first viewpoint, our third <laughs> magic system. Right at the get-go, right out of the gate, you know? I, like, I, I really, really liked Marsh's viewpoints. As you were saying, Drew, I really appreciated how they were a lot shorter, how there's so much more to be asked because of it. Um, Did you just say hemallergy? Yeah, we're, we're not listening Sorry. to anything else you've said. <laughs> hold, I've been... hold on, let's back up there. How do you pronounce it? Hemallergy. Hemallergy. Oh, sh**. <laughs> I like that a lot more too. I'm gonna start saying it that way. I've anyway. never heard someone say hemallergy before. That, that like my it, whole it brain may or may not short be, It may or may not have Wait, a lot. How to do, do you guys pronounce the second of the three magic systems? Ferrukemi. 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 Yeah. Ferrukemi. Okay. All right. All right. So I used Farouk, to pronounce it. You were expecting me to say Farukami, weren't you? So when when mm -hmm. I first read it, I I pronounced it in my head as Farukami. And Did then, you really? yeah, and then like the the next time I read it, and I kind of took a second to think about the, you know, the the parts of the, the word yeah. words, and I was like, oh, oh, Ferrukemi, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> Hold on, I'm start. I'm, I'm already forgetting. Hemallergy or hemallergy? It's hemallergy. hemallergy. <laughs> we're, we're putting the hard e on the first bell. Okay, on the first bell. Okay, got you, got you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. Rob. Um, what were you saying? Go on with your point. Yeah, what about hemallergy? <laughs> oh, uh, we got we got hemallergy, ladies and gentlemen, in our first viewpoint, our third magic system. Boom, right there. So I thought it was it was a cool way to balance how damn depressing these are on even on rereads, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's um, everything I have about the characters. So shall we move into our spoiler section? Then? Yes, I agree. Oh yeah, no, okay. I did that around the forty-minute mark. So you guys take it away. <laughs> it's okay. We're gonna stop. What what Drew means by that is we're gonna stop bleeping them. Ah, okay, I see. And so. and discussion about Cosmere connections. Yeah, is is now on the table. Okay, one of the Wait. one of the most fun Cosmere connections that we get is in Fadrix, when okay. Vin is meeting with a Set's list of informants. Uh, and yes. we, you know, if yep. you know what you're looking for, and if you paid really close attention during book one, Drew is telling mm -hmm. me to wait. No, 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 keep, keep okay. going. Right. I need to pull something up. If here. we pay attention during book one, then we recognize the name, right? So Vin is going mm -hmm. to meet with Hoyd, an informant in Fadric City. And of course, you know, we all know who well, Hoyd is, yeah. right? Yeah. But even if, even if we were reading this, you know, back 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was, uh, if you paid close attention, Hoyd was the name of the beggar that Kelsier met with in Luthadel. Uh, what's this yep. guy doing here in Fadrix? And so... Right after he meets Strath. And the, the yeah. nice thing about it, the fun thing about it, is that uh, Brandon puts a little Easter egg in there and then just has Vin take off. She's like, yeah, something feels weird. I'm out of here. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. She doesn't go back. There's no more, like, uh, you know, he doesn't, why. he doesn't just, hunt her, her down instinct. or something. She's just like, oh, he's humming to himself. That's weird. I'm out. So, I it, it may just be that it's been so long since I've read these books. I don't remember Hoyd being named in Hero of Ages until yep. this time around. It could have been like, changed. Oh yeah, no, no, and it, it was definitely named. Of course, I was listening to the audiobook myself. Yeah, yeah, little, and so I'm. I, I need to dig out my old first edition hardcover and and go look up chapter twenty seven. 
and see. I will if do she that right now. Hoid. You keep going because uh, I. Version, you mean? I yeah. I mean I. I have yeah, a, not? a I mean, newer paperback and I have a by name book. In, uh, the Well of Ascension, but he does appear by name in the Hero of Ages. I don't see, see why Brandon would change that. I, I did not remember him appearing by name in the Hero of Ages. Well, I he always did. Well, because, <laughs> because there was so much discussion on the forums in the fandom when this book came out about, like, is Hoyd slow swift? No, you see the and, and I from just, 2016 Secret History. Yes, yes, I know that. Okay. This book I'm came sorry, out I'm not eight years I'm before that. that to people who are foolish enough to think that. No, to yeah, ask that. The, the, I'm talking about the discussions eight years before Secret History came oh, out, where sorry, people got you. wondered, got "Is Slow Swift Hoyd?" and and even to this day, is is Hoyd named in the hardcover? Yes, I'm holding the first edition yep. hardcover. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, because I just on. saw there was a, a thread on Reddit where a guy had only read. Um, the Final Empire, Elantris, Warbreaker, Well of Ascension, and was like two-thirds of the way through Hero of Ages, and he posted, and he's like, I think Hoyt is slow swift. And yeah, I was like, a... that doesn't make any sense if you had just read that scene and Hoyt's name was mentioned as being yeah. the beggar. He so, yeah. didn't just read that scene, or he's just not paying attention? Yeah, yeah. He, he may have just posted that immediately after meeting Slow Swift, but before she goes but to meet But it's the Hoyt. right kind of question yeah, yeah. for a Sanderson fan to ask. That's the right kind of question. Yeah. He's on the right path. <laughs> just always, whenever right you meet things. any new character, ask, is this Hoyt? I mean, that was, I will never forget reading, I'm not going to go into spoilers, but reading White Sand, the prose for the first time, where I was just like, anytime there was like a dude with white hair or a dude who was kind (laughs) of wise or a storyteller, I was like, that's Hoyt. No, that's Hoyt. No, that's Hoyt. And then I found out later that Hoyt doesn't even like appear on the page in White Sand. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm. And like, he's like obliquely referenced in like a memory of one character <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah we're, we're still speaking about slow swift craig you look like you want to say something i want to give you the chance well first. we're speaking about hoyt right no i'm i'm, well, sorry, I'm good brought up slow swift i'm good yeah you're good okay because i want to really quickly mention slow swift what's up drew you look like you want to say something okay oh i i was gonna say if if we are done with hoyt then yeah there is something of particular interest to craig with slow swift oh is there uh, he, oh, he was okay. he was uh, Brandon, as I understand it, he was Brandon Sanderson's um, kind of Tolkien insert oh, into yeah. Mistborn. Okay. Oh, just being uh, what Treebeard or something? What what was Slow no, Swift? Tolkien himself. Slow Swift is like Tolkien in Skadri. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Okay, now I got to go back and read that because that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I just read that for the first time today when I was looking up Slow yeah. Swift before I wrote down my points about Slow Swift because I wrote down, speaking of characters I'm super suspicious of, I am keeping an eye on Slow Swift. This is before I actually <laughs> looked this that's, up today. That's funny that because Tolkien is the least suspicious person of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice, and I, I, I will just say this, I'm, I, I don't know if this has any greater meaning or if this is just a happenstance of description here. But there's one point when slow, like when Vin is observing him and he's talking to her and he's, you know, he's smoking his pipe. He breathes out and I quote, he exhales mist and smoke. Not smoke, mist and smoke. Uh... I'm just saying, I'm just pointing that out. I don't, I'm not going to suggest anything. I mean, that's, I I would guess that that's uh, just, you know, condensation from his breath. But yeah. 
I, I don't I like like going like full spoilers here. And this, again, I don't this is see I any mechanic that reference. we know of that would allow somebody to like breathe out alomantic mist. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like I, I this is before I realized that like like today is the day that I realized this is kind of like a Tolkien insert, like a like an homage there. Uh, but yeah, I, I wrote that down because I was suspicious as hell when I had no no context for Slow Swift, and I realized he had breathed out mist and smoke from his cigar. So it took me as interesting. I'm just bringing that up in my miscellaneous. Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's it's tough for me to just say, oh, it's a coincidence because this is Brandon Sanderson we're talking about, but I feel right. like that's it's a fair. coincidence. It's fair. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saying I've definitely fallen on the side of it being coincidence. I mean, myself, I think it's coincidence, obviously, as well. But yeah, it, it, the old man let out a I, breath of mist and smoke. I, yeah, I feel like that's just like condensation, you know, yeah. or or yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like ninety nine point nine nine percent on that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. You just you can't rule it out with a man like Brandon Sanders. No, you can't. You you never yeah. can. You, you never can. Yeah. Um, uh, Dern. Let's talk about Dern just real quick. Which one's Dern? I'm also okay. suspicious. He was Dern the... is the one. He's is Spook's uh, underground. Oh sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I feel like Sanderson's description of this guy is just a hair too in-depth for somebody who turns out to be, you know, only of minor relative importance. The way he mm. describes Dern's mastery at music, his yes. perfect, complex rhythm, Spook even thinks any minstrel would have envied him or, or some such, you know, nonsense. I'm way suspicious of anybody in the Cosmere who turns out to be an excellent musician. Yeah. Brandon <laughs> tends to treat, in my experience, he tends to treat that particular talent a little more mystically, you know, with especially with other characters like Hoyd. I, I, I don't rightly know what I think about Dern, but I'm keeping my damn eye on him. That's all. Yeah, I, I would... I would not at all be surprised if the name Dern shows up on, on Roshar or Cell or something exactly. a few years down the line here. Yep. Uh, but speaking of world hoppers, I did notice something I, I had forgotten. Felt oh. has is given enough trust that he's in charge of one of the storage caverns. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, oh, early on, early on, Vin, is, is or Vin and Elend are talking. Uh, he's Illegal the one City. like way, way east, I think. Um, early on, they're talking about like all the different where all the members of the crew are. Yeah, and and Ellen mentions Felt is out like watching over one of the the storage caverns, and I was like, huh. And he's a world he, hopper, huh? And he's he's indeed a world hopper. He's a, a Colin guard. He yep visited the Night Watcher with Dalinar, and he's well, no, a he, scout he led on the Dalinar to the Night Watcher. Well, he, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't there physically, but he was on that <laughs> yeah. journey. Yeah, um, and he's a scout on the shattered planes, you know, like so. He's he's so. got some. He's he's got his fingers in a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, my last miscellaneous point is just something so stupid. It's so pedantic. I'm almost ashamed to bring it up, but I just want to take a quick ten seconds to complain about the choice of a name for a particular character. This man who takes over Erto, and at one point it's either Wellian. It's either Caesar or Breeze that outright says uh, uh, something along the lines of the fact that they need to quell this rebellion. And the dude's name is Quellian. I just... I, I, I don't know. It just Interesting. Makes, it makes okay. me grumble All right. a little bit. I'm just like... Mm, Rob, I... What? Like... I don't... Uh, I, I don't feel the same about that particular instance, but I'll give you that because 
the one moment for me that it, it doesn't matter how many times I read this book, how much leeway I want to give Brandon because I like him and I like his books and all that stuff. Every single time I come to the homicidal hat trick line, oh, I want to God. burn my book. We, we referenced this way earlier, I think in the Wheel of Time, perhaps. No, in, a, in our very first Elantris episode, the oh, episode was it? one of the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> so so there's a moment when Ellen is, for those who don't uh, recall exactly, there's a moment when Ellen is talking to Vin and uh, he's recounting some of her deeds over the last couple of books. And he says, not only did you kill the Lord Ruler, but you also killed my father, my brother, and somebody, somebody else. My fiance. And my fiance. I think you're talking about Sazed. Vin is voicing anyway, her about Sazed. Anyway, and he says, not only did you kill the Lord Ruler, you killed my father, my brother, and my fiance. That's like a homicidal hat trick. And every time I get to it, okay, so here's why it's a dumb line. Because a hat trick is a very specific thing in the real world and it doesn't belong on schedule now it, the that's that's fine people mess up and you know put little things in there but i happen to know that this was a point of some contention between the editor of the book and brandon and brandon ended up winning and it just makes me like oh it makes me a little bit sad because i can see that conversation where he's like no it's such a clever line it's such a fun line uh, I, I, it's got to stay in there and here's all these justifications and he wins out and I wish he hadn't and also it's not a hat trick because there were four of them well I guess you can still have a hat trick with four four goals but wait you know. hold on who's who's the four the lord frickin ruler yeah it starts with the lord ruler then Straff, then Zane then Sean yeah but he's talking about his family right and losing people yeah. close to yeah. you but, but he, he lists the lord four ruler. people that Vin killed <laughs> yeah but the subject is him all, losing three look, people close to Rob, him because Sazed lost somebody close to them which is the context of the conversation all, I, I'm being sorry I'm being oh, all, no, I'm no, saying, no, no, no. all I'm saying is that I hate it okay that's yeah, all yeah I know like I can see the alliteration <laughs> is gold I can see why Brandon would fight for it but I also don't like it. I don't like it yeah. but I can see why it's like you know it's this could be like something that they pitched for like the young adult audience. The alliteration is solid, like, you know, homicidal. Hatching, yeah, it just it just feels a little bit too clever. Like, you know, the writer comes up with a line and he's like, oh, man, that's a great line. And his editor is like, yeah, but that doesn't really work. And yeah, I don't uh, think he would do Rob, that again. Rob, the conversation has nothing to do with Sazed. It's Vin and Ellen talking in the storage cavern and they're yeah. talking about trust and everything. Yeah. And and oh, is it? Yeah. They weren't talking about Sazed and Vin saying, I think even Sazed no. like losing hope and Ellen's no. like, he'll get over They're, it. That's not that conversation? She oh. She's saying oh, that, okay. you know, the force that's destroying the world, we have something that it can never understand, blah, blah, blah. Your hope, it's something I've never had in myself and I rely on yours. And he goes, you know, during those days when you refused to marry me, I constantly thought about how strange you were. And she said, that's romantic. And he goes, oh, come on, you have to admit you're unusual. You're like some strange mixture oh, of a noble okay. woman, a street urchin, and a cat. Plus, you've managed in our short three years together to kill not only my god, okay. but my yep. father, my brother, and my fiance. That's kind of like a Is homicidal hatchet. Is this the same conversation trick. that Ellen decides to trust Finn and say, "All right, how are we doing? How are we going to confront yes. this?" Yeah, that sounds yep. about right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. But so, like, he, yep. he's talking about how she has killed four people of importance to him, and then calls it a hat trick. A hat trick is three goals. Like, can yeah. you can you have a hat trick? You managed to do this, but you did this, this, and can this. you have a hat okay, trick yeah. and an extra goal? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that yeah. that's a that's probably an incorrect nitpick, but still, still. Yeah. No, no I, I'm with you on that, Craig. That Drew's that has hockey expert always this bothered from me. Canadian. Well, well and so shamedly so. I I have been privy to some of the arguments because once again, like this came up in in some like beta chats, and Peter Ostrom like kind of listed out all the reasons why this line won out, and one of it is that hat trick predates hockey. Yeah. It, it it is not a, a specifically oh. hockey thing. Yeah, but the, the, like I, I still like it's mm, it bothers so, me. So <laughs> yeah, I, I had a conversation with him about that as well, and basically it's it predates it, and this is supposed to be kind of like eighteenth uh, into nineteenth century revolutionary France is the the feeling mm-hmm. we're going for, right? Yeah, well, it's still on freaking Scadrial. I don't care. Yeah, like yeah. that doesn't it doesn't work. So anyway, that's uh, it's a little nitpicky thing. It it's a very Brandon bit of humor. Oh put yeah, it that way. yeah. It's uh, not 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 Brandon's uh, best instincts, and not not his best humorous instincts here in this instance. Um, okay. 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 So here's a little bit of miscellany. Uh, okay. Re- okay. A piece of religious imagery that um, uh, that people might have missed. So there's one that's really easy to spot. Okay, the spear. Right. The yeah. uh, the church of the survivor has taken up the spear as the symbol that they wear. Mm-hmm. So there's necklaces with the, the spear. And uh, I can't remember exactly who it is reflecting on, well, isn't it odd that you picked the weapon that yeah. killed the your your god, basically, as the mm-hmm. symbol? And it's like, oh, okay, so people who wear crosses around their necks, uh, maybe that's a similar thing. So that's a really yeah, yeah. easy thing to pick up. But then there's also, um, and the, the uh, epigraph to chapter 32, um, allomancy obviously is of preservation. The rational mind will see this. For in the case of allomancy, net power is gained. It is provided by an external source, preservation's own body. And so it's this uh, little nod to the idea of ingesting the body of a god to gain power. And so there's this little sacramental moment with uh, the allomantic beads and and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's all. I don't have anything else to say about it. But I'll grant it to you, yeah? Yeah. As as a Catholic myself, I I did notice that... um, uh, and I am always fascinated when authors, especially non-Catholic authors, bring in, uh, you know, traditionally Catholic imagery into things. And then, and then when when the author is Catholic, that's when I take a special note. And that's you know that's a, a conversation for a Gene Wolfe time. But yeah, uh, but yeah, it, it's it's always interesting with Brandon seeing how he works with religion because he is obviously a very religious man religion and that is, always plays a big role in his books you know that sorry. that is something that mormonism shares with catholicism um it's, you guys yeah have they, communion yeah they don't uh, they don't buy into the transubstantiation but it is still symbolically at least you know the, the body and mm-hmm. blood of christ and all that stuff so right. it's easy to see where that came from uh in mm-hmm. that uh, chapter heading yeah, 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 and, and as somebody who my parents tried to raise Catholic, uh, clearly successfully, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> notice that earlier. But I will be, I will be able to appreciate that going forward on rereads. That's actually really, and good. it's and it's one of those little things that uh, you never know how deliberate it is. You know, I don't know that he's trying to pay homage to communion or sacrament or whatever you want to call it. Or if it's just one of those little things that kind of leaks into your writing because it sits in your subconscious mind constantly, mm-hmm. and so these little things come out. Yeah, and and as a as a deeply religious person, that is you know like a 
it's not only you know sitting in your subconscious, but it, it's it's an active part of your your religious yeah. thought process, you know. And and yeah. so when you're building a religion, it's easy. I mean, like I I know for sure there are aspects of Catholicism that I built into, uh, for instance, the religion in All Flames Cast or one of the religions in All Flames Cast that I didn't necessarily sit down and think, all right, I want to make this Catholic. But because that is the religion I know most, when I think about designing a religion, there are going to be elements of that that creep in yep. as like foundational things, you know? So, yep. yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's all. Sweet. Next point. Move along. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's everything I have to say about the first half of this book. I'm ready to go on to the final. Oh wait, sorry. There's one more thing I just wanted to talk about. This is with this is something I had meant to bring up when we were talking about Sazed, but this is just an aesthetic point. Craig, earlier you were talking about having uh, dived into Dove Dive. Oh my God, I can't. I'm just gonna skip past it uh, into the audiobook and. Michael Kramer's delivery of certain characters, I really, really, really appreciated his delivery of Sazed. I love how Kramer gives Sazed this very over-enunciated, almost Indian accent, and how he very carefully pronounces all of his words. And there's one moment that stands out to me that I just, I cannot get enough of. It entertains me endlessly. And this is when is talking about plans to block off you know, certain aspects of where the in the cavern, and he's going to release it into the Oh, says, whoa. I, I just yeah, we're not you're, anywhere you're, near there yet. Yeah, you are way beyond chapter 41 with that. Wait, am I seriously? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's like in the 60s. <laughs> we'll, we'll chop oh, that out. Okay, let's, let's chop that out right there. That's a very fair uh, judgment there. And that brings to us to the draft, final draft. <laughs> oh, see, can you tell that I've read this book yeah, yeah. Again, and then gone back to the beginning. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, that's one that must have leaked right, from my... Right, I as, probably meant to write that in the HOA2 file instead of the HOA1 file as you're on my too, uh, uh, As you're um, uh, too far ahead penance, you have to start the final draft, Rob. Okay. Hey, I have no problem <laughs> starting the final draft. So, I've brought a special entry onto the final draft once again, and I think this will be the third time that I featured this bottle in particular. Mm-hmm. I had it for my birthday on our, our very first ah, episode. Ah, I know. Elantris. I just said Elantris. I'm going to back that up and say Elantris, as well as the, on episode 27. The alternate romance erotica version where oh, Seyrini is meeting no, Rayodin at midnight oh, on God, I don't even want to entertain that notion. <laughs> no, let's chug forward. Episode 27 for our first Wheel of Time episode. I also brought this on for that special occasion. So... And now that this is what I consider to be my favorite book that we've covered so far, I've also brought on my favorite liquor. This is the Glenfiddich 12-year single malt scotch. All right? I have the bottle right here. Now, from their lineup, the, this there being Glenfiddich, I've had the 12-year, I've had the 14-year, I've had the 15-year. Once I had a taste of their 18-year variant. The, the 12 doesn't seem to have the same bite or like the same smoky finish um, that the others do, but it's it's definitely sweeter. It's It's got tons of caramel. It's got tons of vanilla in the finish, which normally I despise in whiskeys, but the sherry and the bourbon that they list on the actual label there that are in the, the casks, they, they really bleed through like more than enough to offset like the, the sweetness that I get mm. from all that caramel and all that vanilla. So like this, in my opinion, 
the best damn scotch you can get for the price. It's it's pretty modest. It's like lower end of the medium yeah, range yeah. that I've tried at least for scotch whiskeys. So it's still my go-to for most of my special occasions. Like I consider this one to be. I will say though, they seem to have changed the bottle. It's like it's a little sharper. Oh yeah, that's trying definitely a different bottle than the ones I've yeah, seen. Yeah, the cork is a little wider. It doesn't have the same <laughs> resistance. It doesn't have that quite that same sound, that satisfaction to it. That, <laughs> but you know, I try, I try to make sure I have a scotch like this. You know, like once every six months. So there's so. there's yeah. one thing I want to just back you up on real quick. Yeah, go ahead. This is your favorite book we've covered on the podcast. Listen, this this is my favorite book of all time. Wow. That's, okay. Uh, now yeah, that's I want to qualify that statement because there are books out there like The Way of Kings that I hold in higher regard. But, but more than any Wheel of Time book. Because of the ending. More than any Wheel of Time book because of the ending. I think this was a better ending than we got in the Wheel of Time. Ooh, okay. Now, okay. I, I don't want to spoil anything for yeah, yeah, the yeah. ending that we're getting. But this is, without a doubt, and I wasn't sure. I actually had originally wrote this down. That's why I brought this particular scotch on. This is my favorite book of all time. I, I, I didn't want to open with that because I felt like everything I said in this episode may have been, you know, considered colored by that opinion. But this is as far, because of the ending that we get and all the satisfying conclusions that we get, all the mysteries, the spectacle. This is my favorite book of all time. So I had to at least say this is my on, on at least, wow. you know. This is my favorite book that we've covered so far. I, That's why I brought this particular scotch on. Hey, you know what, Drew? Even if you don't agree, I find that to be a perfectly defensible position. Oh, that yeah, it, yeah, it's, no. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge that opinion at all. I, I was just surprised. I, I expected Rob to have liked some Wheel of Time books more. But yeah. some no, the the only one that comes there's a, there's two Wheel of Time books that come close. That is a Memory of Light. Oh, Towers of Midnight comes close to, and The Dragon Reborn. <laughs> but I mean, the Hero of Ages, the last 150 200 pages of this book, I mean, changed my life more than any other comment. Like I I only expect maybe the Stormlight Archive to rival how I feel about the end of this book. If, oh yeah, if if Brandon sticks the landing in the Stormlight Archive, yeah, we're we're like, talking I mean, we're talking I, new I'm new heights achieved in the genre of fantasy. <laughs> much I love this book because it's it's hard to review it objectively when you have it when it means you know so mm -hmm. much to you. So oh, but that's yeah, really this cool. is yeah. So that's that's to end my segment of the final draft. There, it's what yeah. I'm drinking. I, I learned something new about Rob today. So, uh, yeah, uh, Craig, are, are, did you bring anything on? Today? So I, I, I didn't. I've been, uh, I've been imbibing a diet A and W. So, uh, but oh. I will say, <laughs> oh, if I come back for part two, and I, better. and I demand <laughs> that you guys let me come back I'd for part two because I'm with you, Rob. This is it's an amazing <laughs> ending. Um, then I will, I will bring something, and uh, and yes, I will have a draft. All right, I'll all right, do that. all right, sweet, sweet. Well, I, I did bring a thematically appropriate beer on today. And not only is it thematically appropriate for the book, but it's thematically appropriate for the, the panelists. <laughs> okay. Because oh. uh, Rob is uh, from Canada and, and, as I understand it, has learned some French. Where are the Craig, hell are you going with this? Okay. Uh, spent some time in France and, and knows a lot of French. Oh, la France. And I am drinking a beer from Quebec. Oh, nice. 
Oh, oh I can see okay. the name already. It it is. Uh, oh, can you? Yeah. Oh, dang it. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it it's is not a, the Castor, a, a is Belgian Trapel, uh, oh, a, a okay. Belgian style Trapel ale uh, from Unibrew in Quebec, nine percent, and it is as you would expect with a you know a Belgian Trapel. It's you know very estery, phenolic. It's got a lot of that clove, banana, which unfortunately to me not my favorite thing in the world. But I had to bring the beer on because it was so perfect, and it is called La Fine du Monde. Ah, <laughs> oh, the end of the world. <laughs> oh, I like Very it. Very nice. Yes, La Fine du Monde. La yeah. Fine du Monde. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't enunciate French at all, so I'll let the experts. See, what Craig just did there was the proper French. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I don't. I don't do the, Quebecois. La, la, the, they call it the Parisien, <laughs> yeah. and what I just said was the Quebecois. Uh, how do you How do you say it, Rob? The, La fin du monde. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know, my, my mom is a French teacher, and she her accent is very much closer to Craig's because she she's just in love. She's enamored with the actual Parisian French. But for me, I just, I learned, I took French all through grade 12, and that was from French teachers who were Québécois. So, so and those, sorry, go well, ahead. Drew, I was going to say, you, you brought a Belgian beer on, and I will say that when I was in France, I got really good at French. I was never quite good enough that people uh, mistook me for, like, you know, a Frenchman. But mm -hmm. oftentimes they would think I was from somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe Belgium. I got Belgium, I got Switzerland, I got... Uh... Listen, I work with a Belgian, and he speaks very fluent French. He like In, in Belgium, French is a very, very yeah, common yeah, language. Yeah, no, anyway, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so that's... Uh, I, I am the Belgian beer of this podcast. Ah, nice. Perfect. Love it. Nice. Um, yeah, so I think that brings us to the end of episode 77 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next yep. up, as mentioned, we will be finishing off The Hero of Ages... Craig better be back on as a guest. Uh, oh, if, if he's not, yeah. I'm going to hunt him down. I know where he lives. I will be very depressed. Uh, <laughs> I'll write a side song about it. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, as always, if you, you know, if you want to support the podcast, if you appreciate what we're doing, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You can get access to episodes early, get access to monthly bonus episodes, monthly short fiction written by Rob or myself. We have a newsletter, all kinds of fun stuff. Check us out there. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Craig Hanks. Thanks for coming on, Craig. Cheers. Sweet. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>